Good evening and welcome to the Poison Pen Bookstore and joining us for another of our book events and book programs. Um, tonight we have a local student at Desert Mountain High School <laughs> who graduated and um, became an author. And we've actually done two of her books. We did Sonora, the first one, some four or five years ago, maybe more. I can't remember. And and now we're going to do a new one. This is Hannah Lilith Asadi. He teaches fiction at Columbia University School of Arts. Her first novel was Sonora, and it received the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award in Literature and was a finalist for the Penn Robert Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. In, a in 2018, she was named the National Book Foundation Five and Under 35 Honoree. And she lives in Brooklyn with her family, and we won't hold that against her. Okay. So, um, the book is The Stars Are Not Yet Bells. And uh, like I said, it's her second book. It's a beautiful book. And one thing I have to say right off the top, you write beautifully. I mean, as, as difficult some of these spots are in the book in terms of uh, what's transpiring, the prose was just terrific. I mean, you don't hear, hear it from me, but it was beautiful. And actually, she's going to start tonight's program with just a reading from the book, just so you can all get a feeling for that. Okay? Okay. Thank you so much, Larry. Is there any part in particular you want me to read from? If not, I'll just read the beginning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good? Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So... Um, I'll read from the beginning. It is just a brief preamble that it is a story um, told from the perspective of a woman who has dementia. Um, and as her sort of mind starts to um, disintegrate, or um, her cognition starts to disintegrate, excuse me, she begins to simultaneously see into this other kind of realm. Um, and throughout the book, there's a question about whether she's really seeing these things or whether it's a um, product of her illness. So anyways, I will start at the beginning and read maybe just the first um, two chapters, which are short. One, it is not yet the end. Moss descends from the oaks, thick as curtains, veiling the night's secrets from the living. A wild mare and her foal are out to feed before the dawn. Seagulls bark their hunger at the sky, and Lyra, our island, remains above the sea. The ocean has not engulfed all of this. Even though I've woken from that dream I've had again and again over the decades. In last night's rendering, after the island had burned and sunken into the waters, and all the stars had fallen into the Atlantic, I could still swim, and beneath the surface, wandering among the blue constellations like a mermaid, at last I found Gabriel. Two, but it is not the story of a drowned ghost haunting my dreams that Dr. Madeira wants from me. He says I must focus on the facts. Dr. Madeira has commanded that I report the story of myself, the real story, every morning. Should I get lost, he has offered me helpful mnemonic exercises. What is your age? What is your name? Where do you live? What year is it? Who is your husband? 
What are the names of your children? What is the weather like today? The wind smells of rain. My name is El Rainier. It is May the 13th, 1997. A, boy a voice talks at me from the radio, telling me that the market has turned for the worse. The Israelis and Palestinians are at war. Snow falls late in the north. The broadcast makes it sound as if the world is finally ending. I no longer tremble at signs of the apocalypse, since my own was prophesied for me in a fluorescent medical office some time ago. At the start of the Second World War, I moved from New York City to Lyra Island, population 400, most of whom until these last years were employed by my husband, Simon. We have lived since then on this strip of sand, woolly with oak off the coast of southern Georgia. The dunes here shimmer white as snow. Wild horses roam, ancient and unapproachable as unicorns. Storms trample us in this part of the world. We are the midwife of the ocean's wrath. Hurricanes have ravaged my garden many times over. Until this year, I've always been able to revive my rose bushes. Our home was built on the foundation of a previous one, which was built on the foundation of one before that. Both houses burned to the ground a century apart. The island has never wanted us. Back in 41, the three of us, Gabriel, Simon, and I, had anchored at the dock on the riverside rather than the oceans, where the irreverent tangle of oak recalls the woods of some fairy tale. I knew even then that I'd become lost in them. The path to the house was scarcely marked by an ancient sandy trail. There's, ever, there's only ever been the one dirt road carving its way through the island from the town in the south to the northern settlement. Our house stood on Lyra's highest ground, right in the middle. It was Elijah, at first the groundskeeper and later Simon's shipwatch leader, who guided us to our new habitat, which stank of earth and ocean and fire. We were city people and startled by the sound of our own feet crushing the leaves beneath us. But it was not the land itself that would curtail our welcome. Once the house was before us, I gazed at it in awe, the stone stairways rising into a menagerie of veins, vines, veiling more windows than I could count, the ground so spacious that a wild horse gnawing on the lawn seemed the size of a dog. Even the light overhead was of a different quality, more persistent in its splendor. I wondered to myself how a person would not go missing in such a place. After some moments engaged in this reverie, I noticed that Gabriel had indeed vanished. I turned to Elijah, mustering what composure I could, and asked after his whereabouts. Mr. Simon says your cousin's to be staying in the old shed, Elijah responded, so I pointed him on his way. They've done it up for him quite nicely, Al, Simon said, and wait until you see the bridal quarters. I had not yet had the chance to visit even the bathroom when Mr. Clark Sr., the mayor, materialized from the ghostly spread of oak with a rifle in hand. Well then, Rainier, you've found our Lyra, he said by way of greeting. Back then, the island still answered to the Clarks as it had since the beginning of American time. That is, after Lyra was stolen by the Clarks from its indigenous, most of whom had been driven from the earth. The family had derived its fortune first from gold and then from steel, but they had fallen out of the financial favor they once had. 
It was from the Clarks I learned later that Simon's father had purchased the land where our new house stood. Theirs, too, had stood there once. It was not only Clark we would meet that day, but, entire cadre, but an entire cadre of his local loyals. One by one, they emerged from the woods, armed at his side, as if our puny party represented the German invasion feared along the Atlantic coast. Whatever sudden inferiority they might have felt towards Simon with regard to financial standing on the island was upstaged by this display in military might. Simon's stature seemed to shrink from its former six feet to something less. As he stepped behind Elijah and then very nearly behind me, his slender and helpless wife, it was Gabriel who spoke at last, re-emerging a wraith from Lyra's wild. He stood before the militia in the manner of an immortal, unarmed and grinning. Who knew paradise was so easy to find, he replied on our behalf. And so ended the short-lived standoff. Simon retired early that evening, claiming exhaustion, so Gabriel and I walked through the grounds toward the sea, which I had not yet seen. The island was more feral back then, or perhaps it is only so in my memory. Moss tickled our shoulders as we walked. Above it, the stars were bright as fireflies, a dream of the trees. Simon is still shaken up over that reception from Mr. Clark this afternoon, I said. He even said something about returning to New York, wondered if he should write his father. Gabriel shrugged. Clark was only trying to spook him, Al. Show Mr. S Simon he might be the r boss right now, but not for long. So that's what their whole circus was about, I asked. I was hiding in the woods, listening in on them before they ever approached. They were going on about how not they were not going to let any Yankee take what's here, Gabriel replied. I heard one of them say, it's blue ground, L, that there's diamonds in these waters, or maybe some kind of jewel even prettier than diamonds. Of course, then another said that was all just an old slave story. There it is, I said, distracted as the trees parted. Before us, suddenly, were the iridescent dunes, and beyond them, that canvas of impassive violet sea. Nothing would ever be so magnificent as that first glimpse. Yes, there she is, Gabriel said, drawing me into him. My sham cousin, alone with me at last. That was our first day on Lyra, a far more poetic day to die. Instead, I've lived to hear Dr. Madera diagnose me with a disease that befalls the old, that destroys memory, my own surely, but also the memory of the world as it once was. I stare out the window and imagine all my most beautiful memories, stretching vast and deep as the ocean, shimmering blue as a mirage beyond the scrum of oak. I am losing the Atlantic, losing all that makes me L, my facts. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, first book you wrote, Sonora, was The Desert. This one is an island off of Georgia. Um, how did you get there from Sonora to that? And, and um, you know, it's, it's a romance, tragic, tragic romance, but a romance. Um, and yet the descriptions for Lear are, are beautiful. But what what is the importance of it and why? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, f first of all, I'm a writer 
of place. I had a professor once tell me that writers can do one of three things or maybe two of three things. They can write about place, they can write about character, they can write about ideas. And I think I'm probably mostly a place person. <laughs> um, but, uh, and maybe a little bit of character and ideas, but those are, um, I don't know, peripheral to me somehow. But anyways, in terms of Lyra itself, um, this book, this character is inspired by my grandmother, my mother's mother. Um, it's heavily fictionalized in terms of her life, but she did suffer from Alzheimer's and she lived in a very small town in Southern Alabama, um, basically right over the border from Florida. Um, and they went down there from New York and you know, they had, there's some similarities to the story of Simon and Elle, right? Um, so I was looking for a place that had the same latitude, kind of the same Spanish moss, that sort of haunting landscape, but I wanted to be on the ocean, and I came upon um, Cumberland Island, which was once um, basically owned by the Carnegies, and is now a national park, and it's, there's only one hotel still owned by descendants of the Carnegies, but, um, almost nobody lives there. Um, and so I went there uh, with my partner in late 2017 and we camped because we couldn't afford the hotel on the island. Um, and that was it. We were there for a few days in the middle of winter. And uh, it was very cold. <laughs> um, but it was it's absolutely beautiful. It's a really magical place. I don't know if anyone's ever been there. Um, so Lyra's inspired by that island. Yeah. Well, your description of it are beautiful. I mean, um, I'm glad you went. I didn't. I thought you made it all up. I didn't realize you'd actually <laughs> been there's, there. There's a place it's inspired by, although there, this is, yeah, it's fictionalized. It's okay. its own thing. Yeah. Well, LL is, is the narrator. She's also the one suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so the nar so the the narrative, you don't know if that's true. That's not true. Uh, yeah. But we know that in the well, you have four seasons in the book: uh, spring, summer, fall, and obviously winter. Um, but she, in the beginning, uh, she is married off to what was a wealthy family. Still, at that point, is a wealthy family. Um, and her father says he's giving her the American dream, even though there's no love. She's in love with her sham cousin, as you call it. And um, she's in a uh, not quite loveless marriage, but pretty close to loveless marriage for the rest of her life. Uh, and these other incidences are, are really, I'm not sure if they're dreams or or what they are, but she recalls Gabriel in a certain light. And, and um, so I get to my question. Um, she's thrown into this life and tries to make the best of it, um, but she really longs for something other than that. And the wealth at some point, I don't want to tell the whole book here, but... Um, she f tries to find other other life, another life. So um, speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, she's definitely an unreliable narrator. Um, 
you know, because not only does she have the dementia, but there's when you hear kind of around her, it's told in the first person, you know, other characters will comment on her depression that she suffered her whole life, um, that she was always a little bit off. Right. So it's it's hard to know what she how much of what she's telling us is the truth, as is the case when anyone tells you their own story. Right. But um, in terms of Gabriel, like I left it purposely ambiguous, is this like somebody she's fixated on forever because she's been unhappy or, you know, was this true love? Like, I mean, I hope so. Right. But I think it's, it's supposed to be a little ambiguous. And even in terms of her relationship with her husband, um, I wouldn't, I, I understand why it's it interpreted as loveless, but I think there's a lot of love there. I think he was queer. Right. And he had relationships with men and, um, but I think that they did love each other. Um, and I think there's a lot of moments where you see that and you see that she's not recognizing it or acknowledging it or because she can't because, you know, so I think I I intended, but I can't ever control how the reader will read a text, but I intended it for the reader to have some questions like, you know, about what's really going on and try, you know, maybe see around her a little bit and listen to characters like Ethel and, Simon and, um, you know, Zelda and um, Raymond, you know, her kids also to kind of build the picture of what actually was. Well, I think in the beginning, uh, Gabriel is real. Yes, and, Gabriel's and, real. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but he's with no money. Yes. He and Simon is, is obviously the, the wealthy pimp. So she goes along with it. Um, but Gabriel never really out of the picture. In fact, they, he comes to the island with them when they first start. And um, speak a little bit about the 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 island itself, the the blue diamonds, what it really represents. And and because um, throughout the book you make reference t to money. Yes. And I think that plays a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. As I read, there's this mythology of this island that sort of carries throughout the book that there's this jewel that everyone's trying to find, right? And it looks like a blue diamond. And um, people have come there in search and a lot of people have committed suicide. You know, like they've drowned looking for these things. And that's what Simon's family becomes engaged in at the beginning, at least, as well. Um, but I think, I guess, to say it pretty explicitly, it's sort of a metaphor that, like, everybody looks at it and sees something else right like a lot of people men in particular in this novel look at it and see money for the you know opportunity for money um but she sees something else right like I, you know maybe this other realm this other world um um you know ethel has her own ideas about it right and her husband also had his own ideas about it so i think um but primarily it ends up being that most characters fixate on the potential for money in this magic, well, potentially magical thing that's happening there. Well, yeah. uh, Simon is sent there, I don't want to say cast out, because they are looking, they, they yeah. all believe that there's potential money there, but he's given that job because nobody else really wants to live on that island in that life. Yeah, because they um, all want to stay in New York. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> He, I read Gabriel says, because um, they're still, he's hoping to get L 
and and uh, it's just because I wasn't raised with money doesn't mean I don't know how to get. I'm an American after all, L. It's in my blood. I think that's what he's searching for. Why? Yeah. He went down. Yeah. Him. Yeah. He's not. Um, he's not innocent of the same fixation. Yeah. He wants the money too. And um, so that and they're unattainable. I mean, that's nobody ever attains them. Yeah, yes. I guess we're kind of ruining it. But well, no, not too much. I don't think it matters. Yeah, nobody. I'm well, nobody, of course, nobody ever gets. Them. We yeah. We we talk about fifty years worth yeah. in the book, so we know. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody <laughs> ever gets them. Yeah. But yeah. but that's true about a lot of people trying for to, for wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't don't Most always attain us. it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, keep writing this. You won't have the problem. Keep writing like <laughs> this. Okay. Yeah. Um, the treatment of the illness, um, Dr. Madeira, uh, it, and he's treating, well, actually, the, they can't find the diamonds, but they find uh, something, a chemical that they can bring up that they do use in this medication, which really sort of drives her further down the path. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and I, I left it purposely ambiguous. Um, so to, to give a little context, they start out looking for the jewels, right? And then they find out that either they are like able to collect evidence of this substance, this blue um, substance, but um, and they find out they can use it actually toward a pharmaceutical, right? Like a new drug. Um, and like the heyday of sort of psychiatric medicine. Um, and Simon wants to use it to help his wife, who's always been very unhappy, and so she takes it. And then there's a recall, right? So this is part of the issue um, of how the money really <laughs> goes. But um, it's unclear, right? I mean, and I left it purposely so. Um, it's unclear how much that contributed to her dementia. Of course, it could have been just that she would have gotten it anyway, right? I think these questions of like when treatments, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, when treatments, you know, um, contribute, you know, um, when they're more detrimental than they are helpful. And like, you know, I, I don't, the book, that I don't think lands anywhere on that, but. The other um, environment is the sky. She's co constantly looking to the sky, the heavens, the s stars. What What's the importance of, of that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, she's looking for God, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, she's seeing something. I don't. Um, I don't think she, it's sort of ineffable, you know, and it's occurring in the trees, it's occurring in the ocean, it's occurring in the sky, these lights that sort of start to draw a certain pattern um, for her and only her, no one else can see it. But um, also a lot of what she hallucinates or sees are th um, things from stories that Gabriel told her when they were young. So... Um, when they're in the cemetery in New York, he talks about fairies being in the water and she sees fairies, right? So there's a lot of these, a lot of the imagery 
gets kind of reconfigured later in her life, but it's from experiences they had together when they were young and in love. Speak. What is the meaning? The stars are not yet bells. Um, it's from a poem. It's at the beginning. Um, the poem is by Mark Strand, and I've always loved it. And it's called my the the poem is called My Mother on an Evening My Mother on an Evening in Late Summer. But the little stanza which the title is from is The Earth is not yet a garden about to be turned. The stars are not yet bells that ring at night for the lost. It is much too late. Just spoke to me. Okay. Look. <laughs> okay. Uh, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, well, since I'm still at Desert Mountain, or I just graduated, right? Is that <laughs> what you said? <laughs> I guess I can credit Desert Mountain for one thing. Um, no, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like a, I mean, I always was writing since I was young, like, but, um, when I was a junior in high school, yeah, junior, we read The Sound and the Fury, and, um, one of the assignments was to write a kind of creative writing response to the novel. And I wrote from Caddy's perspective, who's a character who never gets her own perspective in that novel. And yeah, that was it. That was the beginning. And now you're teaching. I'm teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I, li I like teaching. How does teaching impact your writing? I mean, you, you, you're getting a lot of feedback from, from uh, students. Yeah, I love teaching. I really do. Um, it's funny because I teach in a few different places. My bio just says Columbia. But, um, so it's different, like depending on the class. I mean, I teach an intro class to freshmen and sophomores in college, and that helps me kind of return to the text and return to literature and look at, um, teach as I teach them to read like writers do, to like um, read for craft, how somebody builds setting, how somebody builds character, how somebody builds... Um, plot i like kind of relearn it all myself you know so and you're then, reinforcing everything yeah and then you know in my workshops which is um sometimes i teach workshops and i read student writing quite a bit and really helps me edit my own work and they just yeah my students give me so much i mean it's great good yeah okay um I don't have any other questions okay. right now. Thank you. Now, does anybody <laughs> in the audience have any questions? I do. Oh, in this book? Um, yeah, I mean, I really, um, this book is so interesting because it's really not autobiographical at all. And, um, you know, so it's very different from writing Sonora. Um, I just really wanted to write something beautiful and romantic and like like a nice song someone could listen to in a really effed up world. And, um, you know, I didn't like always succeed, I don't think. I can be hard on myself, but I think there are... I really um, am interested in like the line between... Uh, vision and madness right like what's when somebody's having true vision and what's when somebody's just gone mad and i think i explore it here in a really interesting way and i did my best and i'm sure i failed 
but like, yeah, I would say, you know. Oh, I, I think you did pretty well. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other question? Patrick? Hello? <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the first rule is, like, just don't ever give up. Um, that's, like, maybe the only rule. Uh, don't give up because it's a really hard world. It's a really hard industry. It's really hard to be an artist. Uh, all you do is confront failure and rejection over and over and over again. But, like, if you want it, you got to do it, and that's it. You know, and I, I think, and then that's a little abstract. And the more practical advice is that, like, you have to have a practice of some kind. You know, you have to, um, just like if you were to try to get in shape, you would go running every few days, or you know, or, um, if you wanted to be an artist, you would draw. You know, like there is a discipline to it, and you just have to. If it's, if you go to the laptop or your journal or whatever it is for five minutes, like that's enough. But you need to do it on a regular basis. Those are the two things. Mm -hmm. And then like budding writers, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. Just I'll try to help if I can. <laughs> well, how do you do it normally in your day? Because now you have two young children. Yeah, I write very late at night. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. very hard. <laughs> but it's okay. It's nice. Actually. Yeah. Do you have any questions? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so I didn't have children when I wrote this book, so it's a little bit, it's probably faster than anything I will ever write again, but um, I wrote the first draft very quickly, and it was very, like, you know, sort of, it didn't have the shape, certainly, that it has now. I have, I have, I had, I have an incredible, incredible editor with this book who helped quite a bit, um, but yeah, it, it came out came out of me really fast, almost as if I was like listening to somebody else, right? Um, but then I, and it, I didn't have a roadmap with this book. With Sonora, I did, and I think with my next, um, I will as well. I do as well. But um, with this one, I didn't. It was just like a really different process. And I think every book writes itself, or you write every book differently. Um, but I edited it hundreds of times. I went through so many edits. So that first impulse is just like nothing you know writing is really in revision and um yeah uh, um and then you know a fantastic editing job with my editor but then you know covid delayed everything for years so this book has been done since 20 
end of 2019, I finished the last edit and I was in Paris. That was nice. And, um, it came out earlier this year. So that just, it was delayed for years. So yeah, lots of patience. <laughs> you have anything? Yeah, so I it's from um, this poem that I read earlier, so I won't read it again. But it's um it's the poem is by Mark Strand, my mother on an evening in late summer. It's um uh, that's where the title comes from, and I don't know. It's just when I first read that poem, um, something about the entire poem just felt like a sort of a condensed. I don't know. Like I, I was I don't know. I was very inspired by the poem. Something about the vision and it r resonated with me for this book, and um, it just stuck. I don't know <laughs> the poem. I've I I knew that poem. I read that poem years before I wrote this book, and then I returned to it when I was writing it, and it just seemed right. I forget there were other potential titles, but this one. I remember them telling me it was too long, and I was like, okay, whatever. So my publisher. I mean, I think they they're great, but I just mean. They they ask you questions like that, yeah. What what writers influenced you? Oh, for this one. Um, no, in general. Oh, in general. Okay. Um, I don't know. There are so many. This question is so hard. Um, I mean Faulkner, as I said earlier, um, for sure. Marguerite Dura, um, James Salter. Um, James Baldwin. Okay. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, Giovanni's Room, I think, is like a great inspiration. Because, um, you know, it begins with his lover dying in Paris. I don't know if you've read it, but it's mm. also just very poetically right. written. And, and you know that the lover is going to die, but the story is finding out why. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, Light Years. Yeah, he's a writer's writer. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think Paulina has a question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's a good question. Paulina is another recent graduate of Desert Mountain High School. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but we've known each other since then. Um, Okay, so what have my teach? What are these teachers? What have they taught me? Oh well, certainly to look for beauty in the darkest corridors, <laughs> um, and maybe not to be such a fool for money. Yeah, those are two good lessons, I think. Okay. Any other questions? Are you working on your next book? I am. Yeah. Um. Writing about my dad. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nonfiction or fiction? Oh, fiction. 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 Okay. Uh, inspired by. Yeah, for sure. No, he's a nice man. Yes. Uh, any other questions? Well, I think we we will say goodbye to our video audience, and I want to again thank you all for coming tonight. And um, it was really a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much. Good to Thank see you. you. Again. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them 
and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.